Stories on Media. This is Coming Out Stories. It's a podcast about one of the most important conversations of your life. I'm Emma Goswell. Time now to hear from poet, performer and playwright Louise Woolween, MBE. She came out to a social worker while being raised by Catholic nuns in a care home. I would say I was really, really young when I started to get crushes on women. But I'd, I don't think I had a word for it. I only heard the word lesbian. The first time I remember, it was as an insult against somebody else. And, it, you know, and for a while I thought, oh, I don't want to be one of them because back then, lesbian, the way it was used as an insult, it kind of sounded like a disease. I'm guessing was this the 70s? Yeah, yeah, it's the 1970s, early 1970s as well. So was it something that you very much thought you were going to keep to yourself? Yeah, it was. And then when those feelings got stronger, when I was at secondary school, it was something I hid even more. You know, I certainly didn't want to be called a lesbian, but I, I definitely knew I was one. I blame Martina Navratilova, you know. The minute that started to happen, I had my hero and James Dean as well. I just thought, yeah, I'm, I'm a dyke. Uh, but I didn't tell anyone for a bit because I was being raised by nuns and also I went to a Catholic school and homosexuality was not something we ever discussed. And, you know, as I say, you only heard about it as, as an insulting thing to be. Yeah, so I probably should make it quite obvious that you were actually in a home rather than living with your birth parents, is that right? Yeah, from nine I was in many different children's homes. Around 13, everyone seems to have lost count, but and most of those were run by nuns, Catholic nuns. And I'm guessing they're not the sort of people that you felt like it was going to be possible to come out to? Certainly not, because I was being fundamentally educated not you know not just about homosexuality but also like the woman's right to choose you know I was brought up to believe abortion was just the absolute evil and also because I was a child that was given away at birth it was often discussed with me about how lucky I was that I was Catholic and that my mother didn't believe in abortion. So I owed my existence to Catholicism. So actually, I really was quite moral as a kid. So when was the first time you did verbalise it and then admit it to yourself and admit it to another human being? The final children's home that I was in was actually just for young girls, young women. You were sort of being prepared for life And it had an A house and a B house. And in the B house, you had a little bit more independence. And there was a social worker there, a residential social worker, who I had a total crush on. And for once, I kind of told her, but she was really kind to me and she, like, pointed me in the direction of activism, actually. I cared a lot about the world. I was actually going to join the army because I kind of thought, oh, well, yeah, there'll be loads of women there. And uh, <laughs> like me, perhaps. And the thing was, was that I was often being othered anyway in those homes. I got my files last year and they all talk about, like, particularly in that last home, it was run by a woman who, when I did come out, she reacted really badly to it and would often threaten 
to send the police to, if I was, say, at the number one club, and she would threaten to send the police, and she kept trying to convince me that it was illegal to be a lesbian. And because then, for gay men, the age of consent was 21, but I knew... Because once I did start hanging out with activists and learning that I had human rights and stuff, I knew the story that Queen Victoria apparently didn't recognise that lesbians existed. And that's why there was never anything in law about us. It was just a moral thing, but this woman was a fundamentalist Catholic. so she, And she was running a children's home. Yeah, she, she was preparing young women for life. And she describes me as, because I don't wear makeup and dresses, that I had hygiene issues and stuff. So she was always trying to get me to woman up. But the thing is, is my file, it's great having my file because it's often commented on about my boyishness and about how that's a problem and a behavioural problem. So I was up against it. So what I did was I managed to get myself out of care early. And so I got out six months early because they just couldn't contain me anymore. I'd already been to Greenham Common. I'd already been and left the Socialist Workers' Party. I then had become a full-on activist. So when I got my first flat, how I got it was I went to Moss Side Housing Office and claimed political asylum. Wow. Uh, because at the age of what was this about 17, 17 and a half I yeah. was yeah. and uh, so at the housing office they were like why what's going on and I was so I told them what this woman was doing and saying and the thing was is at Manchester at the time it was like this revolutionary council mm-hmm. that was going on the city council were doing all these amazing things funding LGBT projects and things and I got my flat And at the same time, that's when Clause 28 got announced. So coming out was so important to you because it actually enabled you to get your own house and live independently. Yeah, but too young. I was too young. You know, it was was not long, probably about 18 months after I I lost that flat because I was too young. I didn't know how to manage. It was really, really hard and I didn't eat most weeks. And if it weren't for the free sandwiches I'd get at the town hall with me activism and things like that. You know, I probably would have starved, actually. It was too young, but I had no choice because the the woman who ran the home was just making my life really hard. And actually, my social worker was being great and was sticking up for me and almost lost her job because she was working for a Catholic agency. Mm. And so her support of me and my choices that, you know, suddenly Louise wasn't joining the army, suddenly Louise was, you know, on the front line of uh, some of the great political campaigns of our age. So they couldn't contain me. And from that moment, I would say, because of Clause 28, I was out. I was staying out. So it was what was happening within the government that led you to not just be out, but be very publicly out, wasn't it, really? Because you were, for want of a better description, an angry young woman, weren't you? Well, yeah, I had a lot to be angry about, not just about me personally. I mean, I I had a lot to be angry about, about the world. We all did. And what I learnt really quickly was there was absolutely no point being angry about the fact that I'd just spent the first 17 and a half years in care in God knows how many children's homes with 
all sorts of terrible experiences, lots of brilliant ones as well. But And then there I was in the world, but you had American nuclear warheads based on UK soil. You had the miners being turned over by the Thatcher government. Clause 28, we had loads of anti-deportation campaigns going. And I was really lucky that all of that, living in Manchester, because of what was going on in the council... They gave us an office when we started campaigning against Clause 28, a secret office. We had a gay centre. We had a growing village with just a few pubs. It was amazing. I, I couldn't have been luckier, but had I have been in another place, you know, perhaps a rural place, and all those things were happening to me, so coming out almost sounds like it gave you a purpose, it gave you a career. It didn't give me a career, no. That was happening in the background, actually. Yeah. My career started at Contact Youth Theatre and I wrote my first play. I was 18 when it came out, 17, and it was basically my first Christmas out of care and I'd been sent to Contact Theatre as a way to keep me out of trouble, but also I was really talented straight away that was recognised and I was commissioned to write my first play. So to be honest with you, my career was just running in the background, mate. Mm. The activism was at the foreground because mm. actually what I learnt very young was an injury to one is an injury to all. So like the film Pride, we were inspired by them, by those activists saying what we need to do is fight the common enemy. And in order to do that, we somehow find common ground. So very quickly I became an anti-racist campaigner. Once we'd lost the fight on Clause 28, once it became law, I went straight on to fighting other stuff because my presence in those campaigns as a young lesbian was really important mm. to those people. Well, let's talk about your fight against Clause 28 because you were instrumental in creating one of the biggest marches in the country mm. against um, that anti-LGBT legislation. Tell us a little bit about, about that march and how it came about. So my involvement came about... The people who first started campaigning were a small group of activists called the Northwest Campaign for Lesbian and Gay Equality. And they'd sent out some leaflets into the... In, I think I was in the number one club. And, like, I got this leaflet in my hand. And bear in mind, I'd just had this heck of a battle just to get a flat and get some freedom here, you know. And I read it. And it had these bombs on it. But the thing that really wound me up, and it was about this... It was called Clause 27 then. So it was about banning the promotion of homosexuality in schools and libraries and any council-funded services. But what that meant was things like libraries wouldn't be able to have queer literature... And to be honest with you, that before I even left care, the only thing that I had was books. That somehow I used to be able to find books with lesbians in it. Mm. And because our library, was, library service was great in Manchester, it had women's press literature. So I was livid about that. I didn't really understand the rest of it. I just saw that books were going to be banned. And I thought, hell to the no. So I went to the meeting... And then it rapidly grew and I became a full-time activist in it. 
and apparently I've only just found this out as we've done the commemorations this year. I always credit those activists for raising my aspirations because there were all these lovely there were all these lovely women as well who'd all been to Greenham and everything. So there was all these gorgeous people, lesbians and gay men, all older than me. I was I was the baby. I really looked up to them and learnt loads from them, but they raised me aspirations. They talked a different language from me. You know, I was working class, grew up in care. It was pretty clever, but, you know, not the same background as these people. And they were amazing, but at the commemorations this year, they were saying to me that it was me. I used to drive them mad because we'd have a meeting. So we'd have all these meetings at the town hall and then they'd all want to go to the pub and I'd be like, no, we've got 200 leaflets we've got to give out. <laughs> or, you know, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. Because what happened was I just became full-time because there was no employment. So every week I'd go out into the village and stand up on a speaker or on the table and I would tell people that they had to come to this march, that now was the time that we've got to come out, we've got to stop living in the shadows because the longer we live in the shadows, the more we're going to get attacked and we were being picked on and as I viewed it, the government were being bullies so the only way to deal with bullies is to stand up to them and so I used to speak like that. I, I was being sent around the country... I was being forever sent to London to meetings at the town hall, at, at, like, Islington Town Hall and everything. And, like, I'd go and tell them what we were up to and stuff. So it, I became I became a full-time activist. I went and helped them organise the first ever Edinburgh Pride. It was called Lark in the Park. And Just going yeah. back to the Claude's 28 March, the one yeah. that was held in, in Manchester, mm. what year was it? So that was 1988, February the 20th, 1988. And how many people turned up? Uh, we say 25,000. At that time, it was the biggest ever political demonstration of any kind that had ever taken place in Manchester, which, considering our political history, that's quite significant. And at the time, it was the biggest ever LGBTQIA queer demonstration in the world. Ian McKellen was there, Peter Tatchell was there, Michael Cashman. I got pushed to the front. I led it with them. And it was incredible that all these people had come to my city and we were all terrified. We all had a plan if the police got through there because the police were not the police we now know in Manchester. The police then, the chief of police was James Anderton, who we call God's Cop. And he was all for using 16th century laws to close down the gay bars and about licentious dancing. He hated us. And we weren't very fond of him either. And a couple of mates did this thing. They used to do this thing in Piccadilly Gardens, right? They'd turn up with a big wardrobe and then all of a sudden this God's cop would burst out of the wardrobe and start singing and stuff. And... I was in a little team of lesbians who the gay men called the shock troops. So we did all kinds of actions, like we stopped all the traffic one night in Piccadilly. There's a famous picture of it in the People's History Museum. And I was down on the ground and it was my job to kind of distract the police, gather a crowd. So I turned up dressed as Bat Dyke and I managed to get the whole of 
evening rush hour Piccadilly to join in with me. And then there were these lesbians up on the top of this uh, advertising hoarding and they sat there until the fire brigade came and arrested them and then they arrested me and we were forever getting arrested. We once tried to barge into Granada Studios and into the evening news, we once tried that. That was quite funny, the response we got off the security guard. (laughs) Were you never getting any serious trouble with the police or...? Oh, it was mostly public order. You see, my thing is, is you never get anywhere in political terms without smashing a few windows. It's all very well being all well-adjusted and wanting to be at the table, but it's also a necessary part of any fight to take on direct action. So, for example, the whole reason women and working-class people have the vote is because of a lesbian activist over a hundred years ago standing up in the free trade hall with her girlfriend interrupting a liberal party rally that had winston churchill there so that was annie kenny and christabel pankhurst annie kenny was the working class suffragette christabel's part of the pankhurst family of course they were lesbians that was the moment when women stopped just writing letters because they were being ignored, and they started putting the windows out. And suffragettes were considered terrorists of their day. You know, so I know my history. I know my history as an activist. And I know that there was a point at which it was important for the queer movement to sit at the table. So it was a bit hard to see at the time to watch Ian McKellen go into Downing Street when he did that first time, because we were all right, you know, no, we're still up for the for the fight, you know. But look what resulted. But the thing is, is Ian only got to Downing Street because we pushed him there. You've got to smash a few windows. So I don't, I'm very open. I've got an MBE. Well, that's what I wanted to say, actually. Does it seem surreal to you now, talking about smashing windows and, like, fighting and getting arrested... And then now you've got an MBE. Yeah, no, it doesn't feel bizarre at all because the thing is, is that's not the end of it. I actually got banned from the Houses of Parliament for eight years as well. And that was over a deportation case. And uh, the next day I got my arm broke by the police. So, you know, the the smashing of things does actually go both ways, it Mm. has to be said. But the thing is, is when you get nominated for an MBE, Mm. it's all secret. I didn't know it was happening. Mm. People put letters forward, but then the Cabinet Office spends six months investigating every area of your life. And that's your tax records, and that's your education record, your criminal record, and they know all of that. But the thing is, is part of the reason why I've been given this MBA, um, I was nominated by Arts Council England, so it's for outstanding achievement in literature and music and services to the community. Mm. Services to the community, for me has been all the activism I've done. When I've done whatever I have done, it is to serve society. I want to improve it and achieve full equality. So that's all been checked out by government. And so I'm one of the unsung women. This year in the list, in the Queen's Birthday Honours, it was 49% women for the first time. So were you pleased to accept it? Was there any part of you that thought, oh, do I want to be part of this establishment? It was a very difficult decision, yes. The difficulty arose because 
for the past two years or so, I've been writing a character called Pearl for National Theatre Wales for the play, the next play that I'm, I'm, that's coming out that I've mm. done. And Pearl has been going through what we now call the Windrush generation. So when I write, I really care about my characters and I care what they're going through. And then the story broke and we had a meeting in the community about it. It was awful what my neighbours have been going through and what they've been going through at the hands of really shit government policies. It's just awful what, what's been done to people. So I was getting progressively angry about it. So that was what was on my mind when I got the letter. But then I guess you decided you could do more good? No, well, what happened was, my next step was, because I don't have family, right, of blood. I have my chosen family, but I don't, you know, I've been on my own. I have who I call me wise owls, so I spoke to them. And what they all said was one word, which was care leavers. So I talked through the Windrush thing, this Windrush scandal, and they were all but what can you do with it? So imagine what it's like with it and imagine what it's like without it. And then I also talked through this with them, which was, for me, I feel quite emotional and still do, and I I felt it profoundly that somebody was asking me if I wanted to be the member, a member of something. Mm. I've never had a family. I've never been a member of fuck all. And then I read what it was for. And then it was amazing. So then I had to keep it secret for a month. And then when it got announced, all the people that I was really frightened about, because <laughs> in the month, in the month when you fact from getting the letter, from when you accept it, mm. you have to keep it secret. So when it goes large, so your mind plays tricks on you. And my mind was just telling me, "Fucking hell, all my mates are gonna well hate me," you know? They're they're gonna they're just gonna think I'm a dick. And it's been the opposite. It's like you've had to come out as having an MBE now, isn't it? Like coming suppose. out as something else. As yeah. it, I suppose. But what has been amazing was that the acceptance... So by accepting something, I've actually been shown massively by my community and by my work colleagues and by my friends how much they accept me through who I am and how much they want to celebrate my achievement. And I've never actually had that before. I mean, I've not had a birthday party since I was about 29. And I stayed sober then because it freaked me out because I hadn't had a party since I was, like, 11 or something, you know? Like, it's not those sort of opportunities for where people can familiarly show you some love and respect don't come often when you've not got family. So... It's been brilliant, and politically as well. It's just amazing, actually, because most of my neighbours are, like, dyed-in-the-wool socialists and greens and anarchists and that, but they just get it. They get it that I've been appointed an MBE for outstanding achievement in music and literature and services to the community, because it's true, I have achieved an incredible amount of work, you know. So I've just told you loads about my activism, but, you know, my actual writing career has been incredible. By accepting the first offer when I was 17, by becoming an artist 
at that young age and then an anarchist, you know, a sort of, well, I wouldn't ever say it was an anarchist, but anarchic kind mm. of activist. It's just incredible, really. And what I'm able to do with it as well now. Because what I consider is that all that I've done in my career is served society through the magnetic power of poetry. That's what I do. That's the umbrella for everything I do. In my book that came out last year, that's enormously successful. The work that I create in theatre or the big live work that I do, I'm, I'm getting somewhere with it. It's great. And it sounds like you've always been out since you were a teenager. Since you came out to that social worker, have you just been out to everybody? Have you ever had any difficulties sort of announcing your sexuality or is it is, you've just sort of ridden with it, haven't you? I've had to... The thing is, being working class as well, is once all the campaigns were over, I had to live in the estates that haven't been done up yet, and uh, I got chased every day for a number of years, every single day. For being gay? Yeah. So the question would always start with, are you a boy or a girl, or are you a man or a woman? Sometimes I legged it, sometimes I stood my ground, got my jaw broke twice... Uh, got threatened with rape thousands and thousands of times, man, uh, you know, with corrective rape because they'll show me, you know, what a real man can do and stuff. And, you know, this past 30 years, I'm not going to lie, it's actually been really hard because it's took 30 years for society to catch up with that very political decision that we all took in Manchester in 1988, which was we're coming out and we're staying out. But there is a difference in experience because of class. And the class, working class experience was it took a while longer for the estates to fucking catch up. Wow. So and, you were uh, literally getting your head beaten and kicked in constantly. all the time, and yeah. yet you, but you never thought... Oh, I'm going to get back in the closet. You were always going to stand your ground. I can't go in the closet. I'm, I would argue, a handsome dyke. I am a handsome woman. There are women in the world that are handsome. And, you know, we, we have this weird obsession in, in our world, don't we, that men should look one way, women should look another. And the thing is, is I was born this way when I did grow my hair once. The only concession I made, here, here you go, the only concession I made once was when I grew my hair. I went a bit Jim Morrison, so I started wearing leather trousers and grew my hair down to like a bob because I've got lovely, I had lovely sort of curly, Irish curly hair. So, you know, in my head, I look really cool. <laughs> but that was partly to stop those questions and also like stop it whenever I'd get on a plane as well. You know, I'd always have male security guards patting my tits down because they thought I was a lad. Because people don't look at each other clearly. Mm. I very rarely get it wrong. I can't understand that. So all the abuse I've taken in toilets as well. I mean, thank God for the gender equality act, you know, uh, with mixed toilets, like, you know, gender neutral. Because that will save me about 50% of the attacks I still face. I still fucking face. I had four last year. If there's anyone listening to this who, who maybe is growing up also in a working-class environment, maybe even in a care home or hasn't got parents to come out to, but what, what advice would you give to, to someone sort of question their sexuality yeah. and, and being afraid to, to admit to themselves and to other people that they are part of the LGBT community? OK, first thing is, is it's going to be all right you are who you are, right? 
and nothing's going to ever change that. So what I advise is find your people. I was dead lucky, right? I found I found all those activists and 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 I found a cause and that unity and also finding people that may not be exactly like you as well but kind of think you're all right. You can trust them as well and just sort of remember that unity is our strength and find those people we are there so you can find your centers your lgbtqia centers you can find phone numbers online and reach out you know if those numbers are saying call us if you feel isolated then call them they're not just saying it they mean it anything else to add um keep dancing (laughs) yeah the other thing that saved me as well was at the time I'm not saying it is now but the music on the gay scene was terrific you know so I very very early on learned that the answer to most of my troubles and pain and stresses was dancing and not fighting try not to fight those fuckers that are attacking you call the police you know because that can damage you too especially the young dykes out there. We've got a reputation in the gay scene still that we're the fighters and stuff like that. We're not. We're the people who get attacked more often and that's why it looks like you're fighting. So get help. That's my other piece of advice. Don't just hang out with other queer people, you know. Uh, Go and find the music. Go Go and inhabit all the spaces of your city or your town. You have a right to be there. You can have your village and your pubs and all of that, but you also have a right to own the whole of the city, not just the part of it that they tell you that you belong in. A huge thank you to Louise Warwin, MBE, for sharing her very political and very personal story with me. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. We'd also love to hear from you on Twitter. You can find us there at Come Out Stories. I'm Emma Goldswell, and Coming Out Stories is a What Goes On media production. In the next episode, you'll hear from Marta. She's a lesbian from Poland who had a secret relationship with her best friend all through high school. Well, she had in the re- she was in the relationship, um, but I think that was something new to experiment. We we're still like kids, like teenagers more. But yes, it was an experience that put me like depressed for six, seven years, I believe. <laughs>